The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for September 4th, 2023. This week, two former leaders of the Proud Boys were sentenced to 17 years and 15 years respectively in prison for seditious conspiracy, along with other crimes committed during the January 6th Capitol attack. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from February 12th, 2021, in which Jacob Schultz sat down with Jessica Davis and Leah West to discuss the addition of the Proud Boys to Canada's terror entity list by Canada's Minister of Public Safety. They talked about right-wing extremism in Canada, what the consequences of the listing might be, what it reveals about the relationship between Canada and the United States, and more. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 12th, 2021. Lost in the shuffle of an impeachment trial here in the U.S. was big news from Canada last week. Canada's Minister of Public Safety added the Proud Boys, a right-wing group, to Canada's terror entity list. The listing might be in Canada, but the group did have a role in the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. The listing has all sorts of interesting legal and national security implications. So I talked to two Canadian national security experts to think it all through. Jessica Davis is a former senior strategic intelligence analyst with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, who is now the president of Insight Threat Intelligence and a PhD student at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And Leah West is an assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University and serves as counsel with Friedman Mansour. We talked about right-wing extremism in Canada, what the consequences of the listing might be, and what it reveals about the relationship between Canada and the United States. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 12th. Canada takes on the Proud Boys. So, Jess, let's start with the basics here. Who are the Proud Boys and why are they getting so much attention in 2021? So the Proud Boys are a group of well, a loose affiliation of individuals who espouse a variety of unsavory ideas. So they're misogynists. They've also been described as lightly white nationalists or white supremacist, anti-immigration, anti-Islam. And they're getting a lot of attention right now because they were actively involved in the Capitol Hill riots. And they have a pretty 
robust is strong, but a, a good presence in Canada. So they've been active in Canada for a number of years. And so that there's the question of what do the Proud Boys actually do, right? So other than descending on the capital, what do they do? Do they do they plan attacks? Do they just have get-togethers? I think it's a question that it'll become relevant later when we're sort of thinking about the merits of, of the listing. Yeah, absolutely. So the majority of the activities that they've been involved in to date have been really protest and counter-protest activities. So they'll go to protests with the direct intention of engaging with protesters, often you know, really trying to encourage violence. In a couple of instances, too, there have been some Proud Boys who have conducted what could be considered to be ideologically or politically motivated assaults, so assaults on minorities. Um, So that's really the majority of the activities that they get engaged in. And you mentioned this earlier, but how formal of a group is this? Is Is it something where it's very easy to tell who's a member and who's not a member? Or is it really the type of thing that it's this ideological blanket under which, you know, any number of people could fall. Yeah, membership is a bit tricky, I think, with all sort of extremist groups, of course. But in the case of the Proud Boys, it's maybe a little bit more defined, just because there is something of a structure in terms of the chapters. And there are specific events that Proud Boys will go to. So whether or not they're necessarily like, I think membership is a strong way to describe it. I would instead, you know, talk about people who are affiliated with it or have attended protests or Proud Boys events. And so that's how we can really conceive of it, I think, most appropriately. And this is, you know, the riot in the Capitol is obviously in the US. And I think for a lot of US listeners, the Proud Boys activity that we think about is something like their presence at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, or they get attention for street fights in Portland. But so walk me through a little bit more. Why is there so much concern about the group in Canada and particularly in Canada? Well, there's been a lot of concern in Canada over the last, I'd say, two or three, well, more than two or three years, but certainly publicly over the last couple of years, about what we call ideologically motivated violent extremism. So this really fits under the umbrella of, you know, your neo-Nazi groups could be ideologically motivated. Same thing with white nationalists. Uh, To a certain extent, other extremist movements like incel also fit under this. So Canada has been particularly concerned with this phenomenon for, you know, a number of years now. Uh, Really, the watershed moment is probably the Quebec mosque attack um, in which a number of people were killed. So this has been a growing concern in Canada for a number of years. And then, of course, when we look at the events that took place on Capitol Hill, that really pushes that concern over the edge. You know, individuals who are affiliated with this group, who are engaged in seditious violence, really raises the level of concern, I think, for Canadians as a whole, but also for the Canadian government. Yeah. And so there's one other piece of that, too, that I think is interesting, at least from my perspective, is that talk to me a little about the founder of the Proud Boys. Yeah. <laughs> you notice how I tried to gloss right over that, right? Uh, <laughs> the founder of the Proud Boys is Gavin McInnes. He is a Canadian. But I do want to downplay that to a certain extent because he actually founded the Proud Boys in the US. So Proud Boys doesn't necessarily originate in Canada. There are certainly a lot of transnational linkages to Canada, but he is a Canadian. And so having an individual who goes on to found what we would often have called an extremist group, and then now we can call a terrorist group, is a bit unusual. And so that definitely heightens the interest in the Proud Boys in this country. 
And Leah, you talked about this in a piece that you wrote for Lawfare. I think this was actually the way you started the piece. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the reaction in Canada to what happened on January 6th here in D.C. Well, I think for most Canadians, it was somewhat similar to what most Americans went through in that we were glued to our televisions watching the events unfold, wondering how this could possibly be happening. But I got a lot of questions from Canadians, from Canadian press about, could this happen in Canada? Could this happen to Canadian Parliament? And a lot of people trying to make connections to our own attack on Parliament Hill back in in 2014. And, you know, to an extent, of course it could, you know, if you, if the right conditions are there, this something similar could happen. But I I don't think we're on the precipice of it happening in Canada. But I mean, Canada sees itself as very, very similarly aligned to the United States. Um, We have we share values, we share, we share everything, uh, except for your last president. Um, And (laughs) so to see this happen in the United States really did draw concerns about, well, if it can happen there, well, then it can certainly happen in Canada, right? And I think to an extent, it could if the conditions arose. I don't think that they are anywhere close to arising currently, but Canadians were worried. And uh, I think we um, have seen, just as we've seen an increase in um, extremist and ideologically motivated violent extremism in the U.S. We've seen similar rises in Canada. You know, they they may not be exactly parallel, but they are you know consistently growing. And so there is a a seriously rising concern in Canada amongst Canadians about violence driven by groups like the Proud Boys. So, with all that in mind, I wonder, could you just talk to me a little bit about what exactly the Canadian Minister of Public Safety did last week? Yeah, so I will back up a bit and say that on January 10th, the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, who has the responsibility for our national security agencies, except for our signals intelligence agency and our federal police in the RCMP, said that uh, they were looking into listing the Proud Boys. And some people were kind of shocked by his statement at this time, but I think most of us realized, well, duh, you know, after seeing what happened on the Capitol Hill, that's an appropriate step for the government to be taking. And I'm hoping that it happened before January 6th as well, because we knew that these groups were out there, that they're engaging in violence, and that it was totally appropriate for, for our government agencies to be considering whether they met the threshold for a terrorist entity listing. And then subsequently on January 25th, the House of Commons uh, returned to sit for the first time in 2021. And there was a motion on the floor by the leader of one of the opposition parties, the New Democratic Party, Jagmeet Singh, calling on the government to take this threat seriously and to list the Proud Boys as a terrorist entity. And there was even a petition started by the NDP, essentially, I think the term they used was to ban the Proud Boys. Now, that motion had no legal effect whatsoever, and obviously a petition would have no legal effect either, but what it did was definitely raise political incentives potentially to list the group. And ultimately, what we saw on last week was the Minister of Public Safety actually did list the Proud Boys, did add the Proud Boys, as well as the base and Adam Waffen and 10 other offshoots of ISIS and Al-Qaeda to the Canadian terrorist entity list. And for your listeners who are familiar with like 
foreign terrorist organization designations in the United States, it's kind of similar, but we don't differentiate between groups based on whether they're foreign in origin or domestic in origin. Our terrorist entity groups is uh, equal opportunity. So ultimately, the minister announced that cabinet had made the decision that there were reasonable grounds to believe that the Proud Boys met the criteria for listing, and they went ahead and listed the Proud Boys. And so there's a lot to unpack for But one thing, too, that I, I mean, I found particularly striking is that even before the Proud Boys, there were two, I guess what you would call sort of neo-Nazi white supremacist groups already on there. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what led to those groups making it on there in the first place. So it's not like the Proud Boys are sort of forging new ground as the you know, only non-jihadist group on the list. As to why specifically them, I'll leave that to Jess, but I will say we both we wrote, both wrote about this back when it happened. Essentially, there had been a push to recognize within the you know security intelligence community the growing threat that groups like Combat 18 and Blood and Honor, so they're affiliates of the same organization essentially, to add them to Canada's terrorist entity list. And, and we celebrated it at the time because it was a, finally a recognition that terrorism is a tactic used by groups across the ideological, political, and political spectrum. And you wouldn't have known that looking at our terrorist entity list prior to 2019. Why exactly them at the time? Jess is better positioned to talk to that. Yeah, Jess, I'd be curious to hear. Well, there's a lot of lead up for not a lot of answers, to be honest. When we saw those two listings, the Combat 18 one particularly, a lot of those of us who did watch the extremist space were a bit puzzled by it, to be honest, because to the best of our knowledge, there was minimal, if little, activity of those two groups particularly, especially when we look at other groups that were active in Canada a couple of years ago. Now, more recently, when you look at things like Adam Waffen Division and the base, there's a much clearer motive behind the listing in terms of the individuals who have been involved in that, some of whom have originated in Canada, possible training camps taking place. So there's a much more clear nexus to Canada, which, as Leah obviously said, that we don't have to have. But in terms of prioritizing what groups, it makes a little more sense if we're looking at ones that have a bit more of a direct domestic impact. And I just want to take a second to and go back to the question about why Canadians were really concerned about the Capitol Hill and, and the question about whether or not it could happen here in Canada. One of the things that happened back a couple of years ago is we had this pro-pipeline protest that took place. It was a convoy from the West. It involved peripherally a number of individuals involved loosely in extremist groups and, and movements in this country. And they had a convoy that came to Ottawa, came to Parliament Hill, and there was a lot of talk about how many hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people that would show up on Parliament Hill. And so I think that there is a bit of an echo of that incident when we look at the Capitol Hill riots. Obviously, nothing of that scope or scale took place. But for Canadians, there's a bit of a memory of that, you know, this is something that a lot of individuals who are loosely ideologically associated with with Proud Boys and similar groups are interested in doing. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I'll just add one other point. Jessica raises an, an excellent observation there. We also recently had an individual uh, ram the gates of the residence where both the governor general and the, and the prime minister live with a lot of weaponry um, and make his way onto the grounds where he was ultimately arrested. And he just pled guilty this week, actually. Um, he was apparently trying to arrest the prime minister. So, you know, we have seen 
similar type action um, as Jessica raised over the last couple of years, but like I said, nothing nothing as significant as January 6th, but Jessica's term echo is, I think, uh, really apt. Yeah, I mean, that really reminds people, I think, in the U.S., particularly of the stuff that happened with the governor of Michigan, Gresham Whitmer, earlier this year, the attempted kidnapping. Yeah, and we see a lot of that, too, in Canada. So a lot of the extremist language around that is about um, hanging the prime minister, trying him for treason, um, conducting citizens' arrests. So we see the same language echoing both between Canada and the United States. It's really interesting. Yeah. So I want to move back to this legal specifics in a second, but first I'm going to pose a, a highly US centric question. So the Proud Boys are obviously a very objectionable group, but they're also a group, as Jessica had mentioned, who was founded in the United States. I would assume that the majority of the group members live in the United States. And the US is a massively important Canadian ally and vice versa. So this is a pretty unique situation for a US ally to list a US, effectively US-based organization as a terror group. I wonder if that, and either of you feel free to answer it, I wonder if that figured into the conversation at all. Leah, go ahead. I, I would think that it would figure into the conversation in the sense that uh, we would have good intelligence and evidence sharing with our U.S. partners who would be investigating this threat, which might have gone to persuading or convincing the Minister of Public Safety and Cabinet that the threshold had been met. Obviously, it is awkward, you know, 20 years on to be fighting a war on terror with the United States, and now the terrorist threat is coming from the United States. But, you know, the current administration, and I think federal agencies in the United States has been, has been taking this threat very seriously and in partnership with it, Five Eyes allies and Canadian allies for sure. And Jess? Yeah, this is an interesting question and, and one that I've been sort of mulling for some time now, because what we're really seeing in ideologically motivated violent extremism is basically an export of these ideologies from the United States. That's not to say that they're not finding fertile ground in Canada, but a lot of them are really originating in the United States. So I think that we're going to see a little bit more of this kind of activity. But at the same time, when you look at this listing, it's not like Canada has sanctioned the US for that activity, which is something that you'd expect to see with basically any other country that was exporting extremism. So there's a real, obviously, we're not going to sanction the US, I hope, in any kind of way. But there's a real nuance in terms of what's happening on the counterterrorism space here. Um, and this is probably, it's probably a consideration that, yes, this is a US-based group, but so are the vast majority of the threats that we're facing right now. Hmm. And so, Leah, you had mentioned this a bit, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what the threshold is for for making the list. How high is is the bar to get listed? It's not really that high of a bar, to be quite honest. The threshold is one based on reasonable grounds to believe, which is you know an evidence based probability that a group has attempted to or engaged in um, or supported other groups who have engaged in terrorist activity. And terrorist activity is another defined term within the Canadian criminal code. And so one thing that I think both Jessica and I have raised in recent days is the fact that it apparently can be a single action that meets the definition of terrorist activity committed by members of a group or affiliates of a group that would be sufficient to get the entire organization listed as a terrorist entity. 
I think if you were to look at previous listings, that's also the case. But that has been particularly interesting in the in the conversations we've been having up here in Canada, simply because the Minister of Public Safety did come out and very firmly reiterate and repeat that the Proud Boys listing wasn't based purely or as a result of the January 6th attack. But when we actually look at the actual evidence of listing, the only activity that gives rise to the, meeting the threshold of terrorist activity would be the January 6th attack. So the decision, again, also doesn't have to be based on, you know, prosecutions of terrorist activity or convictions, right? Because there's been no conviction. There's been no proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the Proud Boys actually engaged in terrorist activity in the United States. It's still all allegations and based on public reporting. So the decision-making by the minister can be based on you know, news reports, but it can also be based on classified information that is never made public to us or to the groups that are listed. So the threshold's pretty low, and then what they can rely on to meet that threshold is really, really broad. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this, but how much do we actually know about the process that leads up to listing? Is it is the type of thing where there's any sort of obligation to on the government's behalf to disclose, you know, even just gesture toward a specific reason, or is it really up to their discretion? So essentially the way the process works is this. So the security intelligence agencies or various security agencies will compile evidence or intelligence, and they try to rely as much as possible on public information to meet the threshold. And if you actually look at all of the listings, it will be publicly available information that forms the actual basis for the threshold being met. That evidence or intelligence or information is reviewed by lawyers from the Department of Justice. I used to be one of them. And then to determine whether the legal threshold has been met because there are exceptions. Um, there's like an armed conflict exemption, for example, if we were talking about the use of terrorism as a tactic in an armed conflict. And then once a decision has been made that there is evidence of the threshold being met, that report is then pushed towards the, the minister's office, who then he has to be satisfied on reasonable grounds to believe that the threshold's been met. And then that, that decision is ultimately made by cabinet. Hmm. So let's talk about the consequences of this. So Leah, you wrote a, a whole piece in Lawfare talking about this, but from a practical and a legal standpoint, what does it actually mean to be on the list? So, so walk me through some of the consequences and, and what exactly is criminalized as a result of this. Yeah. So I'm happy to talk about the legal. I think Jess um, has better experience in the practical, but um, in yeah, the yeah. in the the legal, essentially what happens is that it becomes illegal for any financial service organization to, you know, engage with property, hold property, or conduct financial transactions, or allow for the, the the processing of financial transactions related to the group. So basically what ends up happening is their assets get frozen. It also becomes, it becomes a criminal offense to provide the group with any kind of property or financial assistance. So, you know, fundraising for the group now is a criminal offense. And then there are activities like facilitating um, terrorist activity. So if you kind of advance the efforts of the group, 
and their terrorist activity, that becomes a crime. And it also becomes a crime to participate in the group knowingly to advance their terrorist activity. So there's all kinds of criminal offenses that get triggered once you have a known group that basically catches not just those who are actively engaged in the terrorist activity of the group, but those who support and provide assistance or at all kind of facilitate the group's actions. The way our criminal code is set up is not that dissimilar to the United States in the sense that by designating something terrorist activity, you get to really kind of back up the starting point for what is a criminal offense farther and farther away from the actual, you know, act of violence. Um, So you can capture more and more people, I guess, in your net in a criminal investigation of terrorism than you would for other criminal offenses. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, and, and so Jessica, I'm curious from a practical standpoint, there's, there's a lot there, but to me, the most striking part is the financial side of things. So you're an expert in terrorism financing. I wonder if you could just talk us through what what are the real practical consequences of this from a, a financing perspective? Yeah, this is where the case of the Proud Boys gets super interesting. So as Leah was describing in, under the criminal code, the group's assets get frozen and seized and all of that, that stuff that she was talking about. In the case of the Proud Boys, though, and in the case of, you know, really any extremist or terrorist organization, it's extremely unlikely that they have you know, bank accounts in their name at a financial institution. You know, I don't think that the hypothetical or theoretical Proud Boys Ottawa chapter has a, an account at the Royal Bank or something like that. However, the Proud Boys is a unique case because so many of them, people who have, you know, as we talked about, loosely affiliated with the group, have been publicly identified. This has been the work of activists, sort of the the doxing of extremists that's taken place. There's lots of public records of the individuals who have attended protests and counter-protests and been, you know, caught wearing Proud Boys uh, paraphernalia or, you know, engaging with Proud Boys protests. So these are all people who are more or less easily identifiable as affiliated with Proud Boys. So the other piece that then comes into play here is our anti-money laundering Counter-Terrorist Financing Act, where our banks, financial institutions, mortgage brokers, all kinds of people are prohibited from providing financial services to terrorists or in furtherance of terrorist activity. They don't necessarily have to prove that somebody is a member of a group. They take a risk-based approach. 
So that means that if there's an individual who's been publicly identified as a member of the Proud Boys or affiliated with the Proud Boys, that individual may have a very difficult time renewing their mortgage, moving money. They may find their funds frozen because the banks don't want to be seen to be providing financial services to somebody who is affiliated with a terrorist entity. Um, so this gets very interesting. The Proud Boys is particularly a particularly relevant case because compared to every other terrorist group on this list, it has the most number of publicly identified people. So I think that this Proud Boys listing is the most impactful from that financial services perspective of anything that we've seen to date. So I wonder, let's put ourselves in the shoes of, let's say, the general counsel of a bank with operations in in Canada. So what are the types of things, what's like the thought process now? Is it the type of thing where, you know, there's lawyers at these banks who are scouring Bellingcat or any sort of open source extremism researcher to find whether they have any banking clients who are affiliated with the group what's like the what's the process for dealing with this so particularly since it's such a relatively significant amount of people right so in most banks they have financial intelligence units or compliance departments who will be responsible for identifying people who could be linked to terrorism i'm using linked very specifically here because it's a very broad categorization. And every bank will have their own very specific risk profile in terms of what they find acceptable and what they don't find acceptable. Um, But there are also companies that aggregate a lot of this data to make it easy for compliance departments to find, you know, the Al-Qaeda aliases. And now in this case, individuals who have been publicly identified as members or affiliated with Proud Boys. So they'll consult those databases. Some of them even have their own open source research units looking at the kind of activity that they maybe that maybe doesn't necessarily meet a legal threshold in terms of terrorism, but that, that the bank doesn't want to be associated with. So all of this is coming together to identify people who have accounts at those banks that they may want to essentially debank or de-risk, basically close the accounts if they can, freeze them if they have to. So that's sort of the process that happens. Now, you know, when we we talk about Gavin McInnes, for instance, you know, he's obviously a very publicly identified individual. He's a bit of an interesting case because if you believe what he said, he has publicly disavowed the group. So then the question becomes, as a bank, do you believe that he is no longer associated with this group? And are you willing to take on the risk of providing him financial services? I obviously can't answer that question, not being in the compliance department of a bank, but I would be very surprised if there are many banks in Canada and probably even in the United States who are willing to do any kind of business with people who are associated with what is now a formally designated terrorist entity. And just again, I think it'd be helpful for listeners, particularly in the US, could you walk us through what are the consequences for for banks if they are, you know, either lackadaisical with checking these sorts of things or how quickly, you know, is the hammer going to drop down on banks that are non-compliant with these new rules? Yes, that's actually a bit of a thorny question in Canada at the moment. There are some hiccups in terms of our enforcement of these regulations, but basically the worst case that they're looking at right now is something we call an administrative monetary penalty. So it is some some form of penalty that gets issued against the bank. Um, in rare cases, there can be criminal investigations of non-compliance, but those are those are really rare and in a very specific circumstance. The thing that's interesting, though, is that when we talk about penalties and financial penalties in the United States, um, the U.S. system 
generally issues them in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. In Canada, that's much more rare. We don't have Mm. a punitive system. So our fines are much less. I would say, though, that the reputational risks are actually greater than the financial penalties that are imposed here, because the idea that you're providing financial services to an individual who's associated with terrorism comes with some very significant reputational risks. So the impact on individual, at least publicly identified members of the group is is pretty significant, as I as I understand it. But taking a step back and thinking about it as the group as a whole, is this the type of thing that could really have a meaningful impact on the way the group, you know, recruits members, does its business in Canada, or is it the type of thing that's sort of too the impact is maybe too diffuse to to really hit at them? The impact is an interesting question. I think it has a number of different impacts. So I think that the listing will dissuade some people from joining the group or encourage them to disassociate themselves from the group. You know, being called a terrorist is still a really bad thing. So, you know, there are definitely people who have maybe attended a couple of protests or have, you know, been loosely affiliated with the group who will really step back from it. I also think, though, that the formal designation will push individuals potentially to join other extremist groups that have not been designated yet. So there's a number of potential candidates. I won't mention them here for less do I want to help them recruit, um, but that's another possibility. And then finally, I think the last possibility is that the designation can push some of the hardcore members even further into the radicalization of violence space. You know, once you've been designated as a, mem- as a member or affiliated with this terrorist entity, you know, unringing that bell is pretty much impossible. So for some people, they may see it as cutting off some of their exit pathways. And is there a chance that this impacts in any real way the, the way in which the group gets money, you know, that it fundraises? I would assume they at least get some contributions from people, you know, the, the group of people who are members of the group is probably much smaller than the group of people who are financially supporting it in one way or the other. Is it is it likely that this is going to make that more difficult or at least just add an extra hurdle to doing it? This raises the thorny question too of how do the Proud Boys fund themselves? So for the vast majority of you know, individuals and events that they're holding, this is going to be low scale self-funding. So individuals just throwing some money together to get whatever they need for whatever incident it is. In other cases, it's going to be some crowdfunding that's happening. A lot of the thing that we see on the ideologically motivated violent extremists is the ideologues of the organization soliciting funds or the movement rather soliciting funds often through crowdfunding sites, through Bitcoin, through PayPal, direct donations, that kind of thing. But a lot of that money never actually trickles down to the individuals on the ground conducting the actual terrorist or extremist activity. Um, So there's a bit of a disconnect there. All that to say, I don't actually think that this designation will have much in the way of an impact on either organizational financing or that operational event-based financing. That will still largely take place either with individuals who are not associated with the movement officially, or that really low-level self-financing. Leah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too. Yeah, aside from the financing part, which just is a better place to speak on, I think there are two important considerations here um, for the listing and what what impact it might have. And I want to be optimistic here. One, we know that early intervention is important for 
um, keeping people from joining and, you know, extremist movements and radicalizing to violence. And I think that by identifying the Proud Boys, the base, Adam Waffen, publicly having these public conversations about the danger that these groups pose to Canadian security is really important in raising awareness to the general population and that that potentially could have a positive impact on early intervention efforts. For example, I work with some organizations that do you know, referrals, sociology, sociology, psychology type work referrals for radicalization to violence. And the number of referrals that they're getting is increasingly related to not Islamist-inspired extremist movements, but right-wing neo-Nazi-type extremist movements. And I think that, again, this is an important tool to raise awareness so that the early elements of Canada's national counterterrorism strategy can be implemented against this form of ideologically motivated violent extremism. And I think that's very, very important. The other thing that I'm seeing, though, largely in my inbox from people who disagree with me um, in my media commentary, is that I think the way that some of this went down um, in terms of the NDP motion, the seeming political motivation behind this is that some people believe that this listing is simply virtue signaling, that this isn't uh, a real threat, that this is just a way of condemning groups and movements that the Trudeau government, for example, is not aligned with. And so unlike other listings where large percentages of Canadians either ignored or would have said, well, that makes sense. There's actually, you know, an, not an insignificant number of people who question this listing in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And I'm, I'm interested to see how that ultimately plays out in motivating support for the group. Yeah, I wonder if you could just flesh that out a bit more. So in your Lawfare piece, you, you sort of sketch out two broad directions where people object to the listing. So the first of which is on the grounds that it, along the lines of what Jessica has been saying, that it, it doesn't really, it's just not really that effective. And I wonder, you know, Jessica gave a sort of helpful explanation of what that might mean in terms of the financing, but then there's also the criminal side of things. So I wonder yeah. if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so there are two broad categories of critics of of the terrorist listing regime in Canada. Um, The first one is it doesn't work. It's just for show. It's a way for the government to be seen to be doing something about a threat, but it doesn't actually really result in anything. And to a large extent, that might be true, especially when you're talking about foreign intelligence or foreign terrorist organizations who have little to no footprint and little to no support network in Canada, right? Obviously, criminalizing support and seizing their assets doesn't make a difference if there's no assets to seize. But as Jessica pointed out, that's not the case for the Proud Boys. And the fact that we have members, chapters, supporters, other linkages to the group across Canada could make the listing more effective than it has been in the past as a way of deterring association with and terrorist activity by the group. The second issue that I, as a legal geek, am really interested in is the fact that you know people since the terrorist listing has been brought into force have really argued that this listing process is unconstitutional because of the way the process is set up. I talked about that really low threshold. I talked about the fact that the information and evidence that the government can rely on need not be released to the group. There's also no notice. I mean, one questions how you might give notice to a terrorist group that you're about to be listed. But realistically, there is no form of notice and no opportunity to reply. 
right? You, you find out you're listed when you're listed. And so when we think about due process requirements, when you're taking steps that if you're freezing assets, you know, of an individual, for example, can have serious impacts on your security and liberty, the, the potential impacts versus the procedural due process that's in place in this process doesn't seem to balance out. And so there's been a long, a long history of people calling into question the listing. And typically this has come from civil liberties groups and also marginalized or racialized groups in Canada who, you know, over the years who have been fearful of, of activist groups from within their populations ultimately ending up on the list. And so, you know, because you have now a group who actually may be significantly impacted in a way that we haven't seen in the past, we now have a group who's quite a bit more incentivized to challenge their listing in court and challenge the constitutionality of the process in a way that other groups have never been incentivized to do. And I think this could be quite interesting moving forward if we ultimately see that happen. And I'll just say what that would look like is after um, a listing, a group has a right to request reconsideration of the listing of the Minister of Public Safety. So they send a letter essentially to the minister asking to please reconsider. The minister has 90 days to respond. If they don't get a response in 90 days, it's presumed that the minister doesn't agree with you. Once that 90 days is up, the group has 60 days to bring an appeal to the Federal Court of Canada of the minister's decision. But then that process of that appeal being heard is largely done in camera and ex parte without any real ability for the designated group to have access to what we would think would be the bulk of the information that would be used against them. So if the Proud Boys wants to challenge their listing, um, if they're incentivized to do so, I was I was asked to represent them on Twitter yesterday, but I chose not to engage in that conversation. You know, you could see you could see potentially these, you know, thorny constitutional questions that have been around since the list uh, first evolved after 2001, finally getting their day in court. So you passed up on the opportunity to represent them in court, but I'll, I'll give you the chance now. You put on your, your hypothetical judge's robes. So, so let's say there is a challenge to the constitutionality of the listing. Is your read on it that there, there's a legitimate claim to you know, overturning at least this designation, if not, you know, reforming certain aspects of the process? Or is it, is it the type of thing that if you, I know it's hard to predict, but if you had to, that courts would tend to be less sympathetic to? So I think we would have to look to a parallel to get a sense. Um, we have a security certificate process that is used. And it, again, used to be based on the decision of ministers and administrative decision based on information that need not to be disclosed to the listed entity. Once the certificate was signed, essentially a person was to be deported because they are a risk to national security. That process was found to be unconstitutional. And ultimately, the government had to go back and amend that process to allow for the use of special advocates in the closed proceedings to represent the interests of um, the named person in their certificate. There is no special advocate system in this current process. So I would think that a court could draw an analogy to say, look, you didn't amend the listing process after we found out that it's unconstitutional basically to have these individuals' security and liberty interests put at risk like this. 
you know, you, you need to amend the process to allow for at least some representation in the closed proceedings. Whether or not the equities on security and liberty are the same or similar here as to deportation in other cases, that would be, I would think, the argument that the government would bring forward is that the the risk to uh, someone's Section 7 rights under the charter is not the same as in the security certificate process, thus not necessitating the special advocate process. But I would I would think that the way reading the tea leaves, the way the federal court has been going in recent years, that they would they would require a special advocate to be a part of the process to find it constitutional. Yeah. So I want to move in, in a second, ask you both your closing thoughts. But one thing that I'm sort of curious about is, you know, in the US, there's any number of reasons why this would not happen, most of them being legal. But there's also the sort of politically sensitive fact that the presidential candidate for one of the two major political parties in the US went on stage in a debate and you know talked about the proud boys in relatively favorable terms and there's there are certain political sensitivities to to talking about these things and to making you know high profile decisions about groups like the proud boys what has the political reaction in Canada been like to this have there been any politicians who have made anything beyond just sort of a civil liberties objection to doing this well the short answer is that the motion in the house of commons was unanimous Wow. Yeah. So I, I want to end in a sec, but just to, to close, I'll ask you both, what's the one part of this that you, you'll be looking out for, whether it be legal or practical, anything? Jessica, I'll start with you. Yeah, the, the thing that I'm definitely looking at is basically what Leah was just talking about in terms of challenge to the listings. So we have the possibility here in Canada right now that dozens, maybe high dozens of people have just had their bank accounts frozen. That creates more of an incentive for anyone to challenge this listing than I think we've ever had um, with a couple of minor exceptions um, historically. So the sheer number of people who would be interested in challenging this listing is really high, I think. The other thing about this, though, too, is that there are a number of individuals and ideologues in this country who would be interested in having the system challenge just because of who the Proud Boys are and what they represent. So making sure that their extreme ideas can be brought back into the mainstream by getting them off that list. So that's really what I'm looking for in terms of next steps. And of course, um, probably some more listings coming from the government of Canada in the near future. Hmm. And Leah? Yeah, exactly the same thing. I was I was going to say, I suspect that we'll see additional listings. I mean, I think we were all kind of surprised that there were only the three IMPE groups listed at the time. And the other thing I will say is that I just, I think that this listing, and if there is a challenge, it will make for very strange bedfellows because there are a lot of, as I wrote in my piece, there are a lot of civil liberties groups and racialized groups that are antithetical to what the Proud Boys stand for that on this case are aligned in the sense that they want to see the, the listing process either reformed or fall. So that could make for very, very interesting legal alignments uh, should this the listing be challenged. Yeah. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you both so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer was Ian Enright. Your music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan, and the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patyahao. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And if you're so inclined, share us on Twitter and share us on Facebook. And as always, thanks for listening.